The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. I've decided football is overrated. I'm done with that for a while. Man, except for the University of Maryland Crusaders, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, we're still playing. There we go. We'll cheer for the purple and gold over there is who we're going to cheer for, not the LSU purple and gold who've disappeared. I'm not bitter at all, can you tell? (laughs) Revelation, the third chapter, we are looking at the Church of Philadelphia. You hold in your hands an outline that's received on the way in. If you look at that, Ephesus was the Church of Lost Love, Smyrna, the Suffering Church, Pergamum, the Indulged Church, Thyatira, the Tolerant Church. Last week, we saw Sardis, the Dying Church. Next week, Laodicea, the Lukewarm Church. But this week, we go to Philadelphia, and we look at the Faithful Church. Revelation 3 beginning in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write these words, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key to David, who opens and and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take, no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we have worshipped in song. We have celebrated your work in our body. And now we pray for willing hearts to follow what our ears hear through your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. What's the first word that comes to your mind when you think of Philadelphia? When you hear the word Philadelphia, first thing that comes to your mind, shout it out wherever you are. It's a chance to holler in church. There you go. It's good. I can't hear anything you're saying, so I'm going to tell you what I think about when I think of Philadelphia. I think of the Liberty Bell, the Crack Liberty Bell. How many of you have been to Philadelphia, PA? A number of you have. It's a great community, great city to visit. I also think of one of my famous, one of my favorite American heroes who is... Benjamin Franklin, he was called, some call him the, the first American, uh, great American, Ben Franklin, who was from Philadelphia, PA. I think of the Philadelphia Phillies, Mike Schmidt is a, was one of my heroes when he was playing. Uh, we had to go back in the archives to find a time when the Phillies actually won, but uh, we found that. On Google, I think of the 76ers, Allen Iverson, a walking tattoo parlor, wherever he went, and uh, Dr. J, one of the greatest basketball players in history who could dunk like I wish I could. How many of you have been to Geno's and had a cheese steak sandwich? I mean, nothing like Geno's is there. Uh, great place to go. Makes me hungry third hour. Makes me hungry first, second hour as well. So it doesn't matter <laughs> when we are. I, I think of uh, Tim Cartwright, our resident junior high pastor who is a Philadelphia Eagle and uh, diehard Eagle. And also, Jared Briggs, are you in here? Jared was going to wear his Eagles uh, jersey today. I guess he was here last hour. I think of Bob Weber. Uh, Bob and Patty Lynn went to University of Penn. So I think of a lot of our folks in the body. All that to say, we're not even talking about that city. (laughs) I mean, Philadelphia, PA 
is named after its predecessor, Philadelphia. The city of what? Brotherly love. Phileo, we get the word love. Delphia, we get the word brother. So, excuse me, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. The Philadelphia of the New Testament is an interesting place. I call it the faithful church for a couple of reasons. No other church has given as much commendation and only one of the church has no condemnation in the letters that Christ writes. These are seven letters that Christ has given to the Apostle John, letters he's written to the churches. Seven different churches existed in Asia Minor in the first century. And to the church in Philadelphia, what we find is an encouraging word. What we find when we read about the church in Philadelphia, I keep looking at Tim, I gotta go to the next slide here. Uh, that's killing me. And when you read about, uh, read about Philadelphia, what, what we read about is a church that was faithful. They were being attacked. In fact, you can see the verse where it says, the synagogue of Satan, the Jews attacked you. The Jews who didn't follow the Messiah, Jews who didn't name the Messiah. By the way, the need for every Jewish person then, every Jewish person now, is to proclaim, to proclaim Jesus as Messiah. And they're being attacked. They're being attacked in a number of ways by the synagogue of Satan, but also by some other people. And there's a warning that there's a time of great tribulation coming as well. So this is a church under siege. It's a church under attack. It's a church that's being persecuted. This Sunday, we celebrate the persecuted church in the world. You'll find a table in the hallway opposite our offices. Uh, the, the actual persecuted church Sunday was the same as Adoption Sunday for us, so we didn't celebrate it then, but we celebrate it today, and I'm going to conclude the message with a video about the persecuted church. Philadelphia was a persecuted church. They were being attacked by the synagogue of Satan, but also they were known, one of the nicknames of Philadelphia was Little Athens. It was called Little Athens because there were numerous temples that dotted the streets of Philadelphia. When we look at the map and the different places that we have studied across the uh, Asia Minor for the last several weeks, we started Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis. Now 30 miles inland and to the east, we find Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is called Little Athens because most of these towns, most of these cities had a single pagan god that was the primary god that they worshipped. Philadelphia was not like that. Like Athens, it had multiple gods and multiple temples to these different gods. Philadelphia was just like that. There are many temples in Philadelphia, much smaller than Athens, but different uh, temples in Philadelphia to different gods. And so they were called Little Athens because of their paganism. So uh, that, that's what they were called. Well, also, Philadelphia, you look at its location, it's an interesting location. It was actually a crossroads. It was called the Gateway to the East. Many times ships would arrive coming from Rome, which would have been way far to the left, to the, to the west. They would come across the Aegean Sea, often enter into Ephesus, and there was a roadway from Ephesus through Philadelphia. It went through a valley area, and so Philadelphia was known as the gateway to the east. When the troops marched east, the Roman army almost every time went through Philadelphia. So it would be cosmopolitan, if you will. There would be many people from different places coming there. It was on a trade route. It was on a route that the armies walked through. So it's called Little Athens, Gateway to the East. Also, Philadelphia was known for its, uh, as a fertile place. It, it was on a fertile valley, and it was agriculturally productive. And so it's to this economically wealthy, cosmopolitan, pagan community that a church is born. It's a miracle. I mean, it's a miracle. You've got this economically prosperous, religiously pagan wealthy community, and people begin to follow Christ. And one of the problems with Philadelphia is located on a fault. And that fault, uh, there was a major earthquake in 17 AD that destroyed the city of Philadelphia. 
The whole city was destroyed. It took two years to rebuild it because there were so many aftershocks and tremors that people were afraid to come back into the community. We do have some of the historical um, the things that are left behind, monuments left behind. It, it was a huge walled city. This is the wall, or, or the city was not that huge, but the wall was huge. These are some of the pillars left on the wall, from the wall today. If you look at the second to last verse we just read, he says, I will make you a pillar. This is what's left in Philadelphia today. We're going to talk about the significance of a pillar when we finish at the end of our message. But just to show you what's happening. That was Philadelphia then. Uh, This is Philadelphia PA now. And this is Philadelphia Asia Minor right now. It's a city of about 40,000 people, 99% Muslim. So it's in Turkey, kind of uh, west central Turkey. A city of about 40,000 people, so a little bit smaller than Temple. And uh, 99% Muslim. So we go back to the first century. What we have is an economically prospering community with pagan temples throughout it. And all of a sudden this church comes about. We don't know the history behind that. We just know that a church is birth. And they are faithful people. And it's to this church, Jesus writes words of commendation and not one negative thing is said about them. So let's pick apart exactly what's happening here. At the beginning of each one of these letters, Jesus identifies himself to the different churches. He does that for a particular purpose, to give them assurances or sometimes to bring judgment upon them. To the church in Philadelphia, he gives them assurance. If you look at verse 7, he says, I am the one who is holy, who is true, and who has the key of David. I am holy, I am true, I have the key of David. So he's holy. The word holy means to be set apart. Not only does it mean to be set apart, but when Jesus writes these words and say, says, I am holy, he identifies himself as the God of the Old Testament as well. For over and over in the Old Testament, we see that Jehovah, Yahweh, declares, I am the one who is holy. And so Jesus is telling the church in Philadelphia, I want you to know, I, I am the same as the God of the Old Testament. I am the holy one. I'm set apart from sin. I'm set apart from the world. He's giving reassurance to this church that's being attacked. I'm holy. I'm set apart. Not only that, but I am true. The word for true in the Greek language is an interesting word. It means to be, it's that which is genuine, that which is genuine, not an imitation, if you will. When we we had the privilege of leading, Bev and I did a trip on Paul's journeys. We traced uh, many of the, we we only went to Ephesus and Turkey, but we did everything else in Greece. But when we were leaving Ephesus, there was a uh, shop that you could go into, and this is a picture of that shop. Genuine fake watches. You buy a Rolex for 10 bucks. It was a pretty good deal. Actually, it worked for about one week and then it was dead. I didn't buy one, but some folks did. I put that up there because Jesus is identifying himself to the church at Philadelphia. And he says, I want you to know I am holy. I am set apart. I am God. Not only that, but I am true. I am not an imitation. I am not fake. You see, in the first century, there are those who are saying, he's not really God. He's not really holy. There are those that say, hey, he's just a fake. He's an imitation. He's claiming to be someone he's not. And to this church that is under attack, this church that's under persecution, this church is under siege, Jesus says, I want to give you some reassurance. I'm holy. I am God. I'm true. I am genuine. And not only that, then he concludes that verse and he says, I am the one who has the key of David. Now, what in the world does that mean? And he says, I have the key of David. What what does that mean? Well, we know when we talk about David to those from a Jewish background, we know that we're talking about the one who has the right to rule. 
Because all the way back in 2 Samuel, David wants to build a temple. God says, you can't build a temple. You've got blood on your hands, but your son Solomon will. But David, to you, I will give a house, a throne, a kingdom forever. He says, to you, I'm going to give a house, a throne, a kingdom forever. So David, royalty is in your blood, and ultimately the Messiah, he's the only one who will have a kingdom forever, will come into being, and he's going to be one of your guys. He's going to be one of your descendants. And so when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, one of the things he says to Mary is, you will bear a son, his name shall be Jesus, and he will have a house, a throne, and a kingdom forever identifying him as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He has the right to rule. And so Jesus is writing to this church at Philadelphia, a church under attack, a church under persecution, a church under siege. And he says, I want you to know I am holy. I'm set apart. I am God. I want you to know I am true. I'm not an imitation. I'm not a fake. I I am genuinely who I claim to be. And I also want you to know uh, I am sovereign, I, I, am, I have the right to rule as king. I, I have the key. So where, where do you get right to rule from the key? Well, the one with the key is the one who has what? Authority. Authority. When my kids uh, came of age to drive, when they became 16, I had the key. The key was mine. And so if Sarah and Daniel wanted to drive, they came to me and said, Dad, Art to Bev, and Can we have the key? And I was the all-powerful keeper of the key. The key was mine. I paid for the car. I paid for the insurance. We paid for the car. We paid for the insurance. We put the gas in it, and we said, the key could possibly be yours, but there's certain criteria if you want to use the key because I am the all-powerful keeper of the key. The person with the keys, a person of authority. The person who can open a building, person with the key has authority. The person with the car has authority. Reminds me of a story of a young man who was turning uh, 16, and he came to his dad and said, Dad, I'd like to talk about future use of the car. And the dad looked at him, and he said, I'll make a deal with you. You bring up your grades, and you get your hair cut, and we'll talk about it. He was a kid who had really long hair. Dad didn't like it. Uh, kind of like my dad and I, my dad's sitting down here. Uh, believe it or not, I grew up, I finished high school in the 70s, so do, do a little American history. Uh, I was in high school, 68 to 72. That was the age of the hippie. I used to have hair almost down to my shoulders. Uh, the only thing my dad and I ever argued about was hair. My hair was always, I'd go get a haircut, you didn't get your money's worth, go back. And uh, <laughs> obviously I lost the war. I call it injustice is what it is. So, so this dad says, get your grades up and cut your hair, and we'll talk about using the car. So the kid came back three weeks later. He said, uh, Dad, here's my report card. His grades are up. And he said, I'm proud of your son, but you didn't get your hair cut. He said, well, Dad, I've been thinking. I, I, I've been thinking about that. You know, Samson had long hair. Moses had long hair. Noah had long hair. Even Jesus had long hair. To which the dad replied and said, you know, they had something else in common. And he said, what was that? He said, they walked everywhere they went. <laughs> The guy with the key has all authority. Jesus says to the church that's struggling, this church not struggling, but being attacked, he says, I want you to know I am holy. I am God. I want you to know I am true. I'm not an imitation. I want you to know I am sovereign. I've got the key. In fact, what I open, nobody can shut, and what I shut, nobody can open. He's given reassurance to the church. You know, we live in a messed up world. 
I mean, it's just jacked up. Every day you pick up the paper and you wonder who's going to bomb who else and who's going to murder who else. And we fight over all types of stuff. Racism abounds. The whole immigration issue abounds. And people killing people. ISIS out of control. And for many believers, this has become a time of fear rather than trust. And when I read these words, what Jesus is saying is, trust me. Trust me. I'm holy, I'm true, and I'm sovereign. Your trust cannot be in the world. Your trust cannot be in the circumstances surrounding you. Your trust has to be in me. So he speaks these words of assurance to this church. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I look around at our world, and I think it seems like man is in control, but not God. I mean, theologically, I know God is sovereign, God is in control, he sits on his throne, but sometimes I look at the mess and the muck of our world, and I'm thinking, is God really in control? You ever have a bout with doubt? If you have, you're in good company. You're going to meet a guy in heaven one day, and he's going to walk up to you and say, hey, my name is Thomas, what's your name? And you're going to say, ah, you are who? He's got a first name, doesn't he? Doubting. Then there's another guy. When I think of this guy, I would think he would be the last guy in the first century to doubt. He was an itinerant preacher. He brought about a revival. God used him to bring about a revival. He was a guy who was afraid of no one. In fact, he looked at the Pharisees and called them a brood of vipers. He says, you're a bunch of snakes. He's the one who, when he saw Jesus coming to him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Exclamation point. Who am I talking about? John the Baptist. But then if you go to Luke chapter 7, John's in the dungeon. John's in prison. His disciples come to him to check on him. And John has a bout with doubt. John looks at them and he says, he summoned two of the disciples. And he said, I want you to go to Jesus and I want you to ask this question. Are you the expected one or should we look for somebody else? What? John the Baptist? I mean, of all the guys in the New Testament, all the guys in the first century, all the guys that were preaching in the time of Christ, he, he would be the least likely guy you think would have a moment of doubt. But you see, when the circumstances of life were pressing in on him, when he was struggling, when, when he was wondering, when he knew that his head would literally be chopped off soon, he calls his disciples and a couple of disciples and he said, would you go to Jesus and make sure he's the expected one, make sure he's the Messiah, make sure he's who he claimed to be, or should we look for somebody else? John the Baptist asked that question. You remember what Jesus said? Jesus told his disciples, you go back to John and you tell him, how dare him not believe me? You go, you go back to John and say, how can you possibly doubt after all we've been through? You go back to John and say, any true follower of mine would never have doubts. Is that what Jesus said? No. You know what Jesus said? You go back to John and you tell him this. You tell John what you've seen, what you've heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel. What? 
I mean, John's doubting that you're even the Messiah, and you're telling him to go and do what? Tell him the blind see, the deaf hear, the lepers are clean, the dead are raised, and the poor of the gospel. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, when you tell John what I'm doing, John will know that I'm the Messiah. Because in the Old Testament, these are things Messiah did. He didn't chastise John. He didn't rip John apart. I love what John did. When John had a question, he went to the one he could question to get the true answer. He didn't go anywhere else. He went to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't condemn John. He commends John. And then in that same passage, he talks about there's no one born to a woman greater than John. And he just wrestled with doubt. To those of us that might struggle with the conditions of the world we live in, I don't believe what Jesus wants us to do is begin to beg to be relieved from it all. I think what he wants us to do is to trust him to go through it. I'm holy. I'm God. I'm true. I'm genuine. I'm sovereign. I rule over all. He gives them assurances. He gives us assurances. And, and then he commends them. It's the longest section of commendation that there is. He commends them for three things, for their faithfulness, for their obedience, and for their not denying him. If you look at the next verse, he says, uh, I know your deeds. This is verse 8. Behold, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut. You have little power. I think that means they're small. They don't have a lot. It's a small church, but, but they've been faithful with what they have. They've kept the word. They've obeyed. They haven't denied him. This open door has been placed before them. They have been faithful in the midst of difficult things. Even though they're small in number, they've been faithful. He encourages them, we'll look at it in a second, to continue to hold fast, verse 11, what they were already doing. He says, I've put before you, you have been faithful, you've been obedient, you've not denied. You know, after studying the seven churches, if you were to say, Gary, if you were to be transported back somehow, back to the future, to the first century, which of those seven churches would you go to if you're given the choice? This is it right here, Philadelphia. Philadelphia, they're faithful. No words of condemnation, no words of negativity. Only you've been faithful, obedient, and not denied me. You know, I read that, I have to ask myself, if Jesus were to write a letter to Temple Bible Church, what would his words of commendation be? Temple Bible Church, you are, you fill in that blank. And what would his words of correction be? Let me get personal. Jesus were to write a letter to you. What would his words of commendation be to you? And what would his words of correction be to you? He looks at them and says, you've been faithful. You've been obedient. You haven't denied it. I put open doors before you. And my assumption is they've walked through those doors from the commendation he gives them. Now, we talk about open doors sometimes when it comes to doing the will of God. We'll say, I'll know God wants me to do that if the door's open, if the door's closed. He doesn't. And we get that from the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul says, a great door for effective work is open to me, and there are many who oppose me, but he still went through that door and he was opposed. 2 Corinthians 2, 12, I found that the Lord had opened a door for me. As I was praying through the sermon and asking God to give me specific direction, I thought, what are the open doors of ministry God has placed before us as a community of believers? And what are the open doors of ministry God's placed in your life? What are those doors? Because I believe they're there. 
When I was a kid, there was a program called uh, on television called Let's Make a Deal. Anybody remember that? You guys have no clue what I'm talking about. There's a game board actually called Let's Make a Deal. And, and it came down, they, they're bartering along the way. And at the very end, they would bring up one contestant who had won the most money for the prizes. And, and that person could uh, decide if they were going to risk it all or not risk it. And they could choose what's behind door number one and door number two and door number three. It was a money hall, let's make a deal, I think it was. And so, so, so they would choose and sometimes they chose the wrong door and they would lose everything they have and get nothing. It's kind of like Santa coming and bring switches and coal and that kind of stuff and you lose everything. But, most of the, but many times they would win you know, a trip to Hawaii or a car or a, a boat or something like that and they'd scream and holler and, and the door would be open and everybody would be excited. What's the open door of ministry God has put before you? What is that? Maybe it's sharing Christ with someone, that door's open. Maybe it's bringing friends with you to TBC or inviting them into your small group. Or maybe it's a door service in our community, maybe to our body, the His Kids ministry. We need some help there. It's a great ministry. What are the open doors God has placed before you? Here's my challenge to you. Would you pray this week? God, help me to see the open doors of ministry before me. Would you do that? God, help me to see. What are the open doors of ministry before me? And then ask him for the faith to walk through those doors. A young boy was talking to a playmate, and he said this. He said, when I get older, I want to wear glasses like my grandma wears. She's got a special kind of glasses she wears because she can see so much more than most people. She can see when folks are hungry, when they're tired, when they're sorry, and she does something about it to make them feel better. She can see how to fix a lot of things to have fun with, and she can see what makes a fella, what, what a fellow meant to do, even if he didn't do it right. And she'll help him do it right the next time. She can see when a fellow's about to cry, and my grandma can see through those glasses and make you feel better. I asked her one day, how she could see so good. And she said it's the way she learned to look at things as she got older. So when I get older, I want a pair of glasses like my grandma wears. <laughs> what kind of glasses are you wearing? Hey, God, what are the doors of ministry you place before me in my neighborhood, in my dorm, in my apartment? It's my family this week at Thanksgiving time. Maybe it's the open door of ministry to your family who gather together on the holidays and you're the only one who names Christ. Your family is the only God-fearing family and God puts an open door of ministry before you. Are going to walk through it? Do you pray that God would give you eyes to see the open doors that are in front of you? And so he says, you're faithful, you're obedient, and you're the ones that are commended. There are no words of condemnation here. I've said that over and over. His challenge to them is to hold fast. Look at verse 11. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have. The, the, the language there, the, the grammar is keep holding fast. That's the concept. Keep holding fast. Like a kid on monkey bars and he's holding and holding and holding. He says keep holding. Keep holding fast because I am coming quickly. Now, when was this written? Not a trick question. 2,000 years ago. And Jesus said, I want you to keep holding, I want you to keep holding, I want you to keep holding because I'm coming quickly. Well, in my mind, and I'm not the brightest guy around, the sharpest knife in the drawer, I'm thinking, 2,000 years later and you call that quickly? 
I mean, what's God's economy like? I, I, I'm one, I, I don't, sometimes I struggle with patience. I, I mean, I like to, I, I, I have agendas, I like to get things done, I'm a task guy, I keep lists, and, and so I do the grocery shopping this week, we're having uh, family in for Thanksgiving, and so I'm going to do the grocery shopping probably tomorrow, Monday, Beth's going to make a list today, we're right babe, and I'm going to go shopping Monday, and uh, I know on Monday I'm going to have to wait. Because at H-E-B, Thanksgiving week, you wait. Amen? None of y'all shop. I mean, there's not, not even an amen out of that. What's the deal? I need to go when y'all go. Y'all tell me when to go when the lines are at line. I mean, lines are always long. Even if I get in the shortest line, it's the slowest line. <laughs> Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. 2,000 years later, you didn't come back. Why? I mean, what's the deal? How's God measure time? Well, he tells us in 2 Peter. He says, don't forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Gary, he keeps his promise. As some understand slowness, that's me. Instead, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why hasn't he come back? Because our Savior loves the lost. Because our Savior has a passion to see folks repent and spend eternity in his presence. He's about populating heaven forever. And so the reason those 2,000 years have transpired is because he didn't desire anybody to perish but for everyone to come to repentance. And so I read that verse and I say, we're holding on, holding on, holding on. Philadelphia holding on. The church of today is surrounded by the muck of the world we live in under attack with people being murdered because of their faith in Jesus. And, and, and we, you hold on because one day Jesus is coming back. He says, you keep holding on, there's going to be victory, there's going to be protection, and there's going to be honor. I get that from the next verses. There's going to be victory for you. Those in the synagogue of Satan, verse 9, one day they're going to come and bow down and know that I love you. Not only that, but there's also going to be protection for you. If you look at verse 10, you've kept the word of my perseverance. I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour that's about to come in the world to those who dwell upon the earth. The hour of testing, it's a specific hour of testing. I think it's looking ahead to the time of great tribulation. And he says, I, I will keep you from the hour of testing. A, a theological debate here about what does it mean to keep you? The word is ek, from the hour of testing. Does that mean, is he referring to the tribulation that we're going to be taken out of it, the rapture of the church? Or does it mean he's going to see us through that tribulation period? Uh, that's an eschatological thing to study. I still hold to the former view of pre-tribulational rapture, but there are many who hold to other views. And I, I say, don't miss the point of the verse. The point of the verse is there will be spiritual protection for the saints of God. Spiritual protection. We don't have to walk around fretting. We don't have to walk around like we don't have a master. We don't have to walk around like we haven't read the end of the book. He wins. Many of you ladies are studying Revelation right now at BSF. He wins. The Savior wins. And so we don't have to walk around fretting and in fear because we know how it all ends. And he says, I'm going to honor you. 
I get that from verse 12. He overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple. Now a pillar in the temple is that which supports it. This is a place prone to earthquakes. I'm going to make you strong. I'm going to make you stable. Not only that, but I'm going to write my name. I'm going to write the name of my God, the name of my city upon that pillar. What's he referring to? Well, if you look up here, here's a pillar. There are many pillars back in, in Roman time, Greek time. They supported the structures, but also you'll see inscriptions on them. Most of those inscriptions are the names of famous people or people who have helped the city, people who be honored. Much like we would put a a monument uh, up in a, uh, a place of our city to honor someone, then inscriptions would be written on pillars to honor people in that city. And he says, I'm going to honor my God by writing his name on, your, on you, my pillar. I'm going to honor him, and I'm going to honor you. And you're going to be strong and stable in that kingdom. And they're going to read, not your name, but my God's name. And you're going to have citizenship in the new Jerusalem. And I'm going to give you a name. And you're going to see my new name, the name above every name, the name at which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord over all. Amen? That's Jesus. So to the church in Philadelphia, you're being attacked. The synagogue of Satan is after you. All these little temples worshiping these little gods are after you. Persecution is breaking out. And he says, don't fret. I'm holy, I'm true, I'm sovereign. You have been faithful, you have been obedient, you haven't denied me, you hold fast to that which I've given you. And the result is victory and protection and honor. Are you faithful in the face of opposition? Many of you, one of the great joys of pastoring in the same place for many years is I've had the great joy of watching many of you hold fast. I've watched you hold fast through broken relationships. I've watched you hold fast through disappointing times. I've watched you hold fast when, when, when you've had health issues. I've watched you hold fast when marriages blew up. I've watched you hold fast when you've been abused. I've watched you hold fast to overcome addictions and to God be the glory. And I encourage you to hold fast. Some of you, though, you're like those kids in the monkey bars whose hands are starting to slip and the grip is coming loose. And you're saying, I can barely hang on. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, because I'm about to let go. And he says, I'm true, I'm holy, and I'm sovereign. Don't let go, because I've got you. The world we live in is under attack. I mean, there are believers every day who are faced with persecution. They respond faithfully. Not all do, but many do. I want to conclude by honoring the persecuted church, but also giving you an example of one who has been faithful, even though he was attacked. Watch this. Suta did recover, and four days after leaving our village, he came back again. Now my wife and I follow Jesus, and Suta is our pastor. When you pray for the persecuted, please remember to also pray for those who persecute. For us, it may be the only way we will see the love of God.
waiting to meet that young man in heaven one day. What a powerful. Aren't you glad when he was attacked he didn't stop? Aren't you glad that he was faithful? And the group of believers worship in northern India because of the faithfulness of a young man. He walked through that open door even though it seemed closed, and God used him. He's holy, he is true, and he is sovereign. Don't quit. Hold fast and allow him to use you to accomplish his purposes. Father, we're grateful. Grateful for a Savior who humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, death on a cross so we might experience life. Through that death, you give us life. If you're here today and you're unsure if Jesus is your Savior, I invite you right now to make sure of that. You can pray with me right now, Lord Jesus, I want to know with certainty that you're my Savior. I want to know that one day I will be a pillar in your temple. So I ask you this day for the forgiveness of my sin. And some of you are holding fast. You're a testimony to us. In the midst of what you're experiencing in life, you're holding fast. I want to encourage you to keep holding. Just as Jesus did the church in Philadelphia, I encourage you to keep holding fast. For some of you, your hands are slipping, your heart's slipping. You've been hurt, you've been disappointed. You've lost some things along the way. Maybe chosen some directions you should not have chosen. This Thanksgiving, the arms of a loving father are wide open for you to return to a walk with him. Would you do that? You say, Lord Jesus, I want to hold fast once again. My hands are slipping, but I know you hold me. And so today I confess those sins and I ask you to be my strength by your grace. Father, thank you for meeting us here at this time in this place and touching our hearts. And now we desire to go our way, not just as hearers, but as doers of the word, to walk through the open doors before us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Happy Thanksgiving.